Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you're going to find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. Today, I'm joined by Dan Huger, Acton's librarian and a research associate, and Dylan Palman, executive editor of the Journal of Markets and Morality and a research fellow here at Acton. And this week, we're joined by a special guest, James Patterson. James is associate professor of politics and chair of the politics department at Ave Maria University. He's also a research fellow at the Center for Religion, Democracy, and Culture, and president of the Ciceronian Society, an ecumenical fellowship of Christian scholars. He is the author of the essay, Is the New Right Fascist?, which appears in the summer 2023 issue of our magazine, Religion and Liberty, which is available on Barnes & Noble and Books A Million newsstands across the country, and is also published online today at acton.org. And we will, of uh, of course, include a link to that in the show notes for this episode. So welcome, James. This week, we'll be discussing David Brooks's recent column in the New York Times asking if elites, quote, are the bad guys. But first, let's start with the question of James's piece. But before we actually, I think we get to the question of is the new right fascist? James, I want to ask you, and and you do define this in the piece, but since anybody who has been an observer of the rhetoric in our culture, certainly over the last eight years or so, but this is in truth a much more long run problem, I think would probably agree with the observation that the word fascism uh, has come to mean what George Orwell said, that uh, fascism has come to mean that which is not desirable. Uh, Can you define for us what is fascism and how should we think about it in the context of a conversation like this? And then we can get into the question of is the new right fascist? Uh, well, thank you very much for having me on. Uh, I listen to this podcast regularly, and I will have uh, listeners know that uh, I have uh, stopped uh, streaming it off the browser. I have it yes. subscribed to in my... <laughs> Don't forget to rate five stars and leave a comment. We we uh, and our metrics, thank you. <laughs> well, the Ciceronian Society is a podcast too. So, you know, uh, once you're on this side of the production, you're like, oh, no, this really matters. So uh, please, um, I, I endorse doing this. So the trouble we run into with fascism is, as I say in the opening of the piece, that um, there has been on the left a tendency to call all conservatism in the in the United States a type of fascism, and it can get pretty silly. Uh, I think the joke is that uh, oh, you went to school. Well, guess who else went to school? Fascists. Uh, and so that's guess who normally, else was a vegetarian, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That so it's uh, it's a case of false positives, uh, uh, and the reason that this term gets used is that fascism is really bad. Uh, so you want to associate someone with real, something that's really bad, but it's also a particular thing. Uh, so uh, what I mean by this is, is all you're really trying to say is conservatism is bad and you're bad for being conservative. Uh, but fascism is a particular kind of badness uh, that often American conservatives simply do not 
uh, overlap with in the, in the slightest. Uh, the reason for this is that American conservatism has normally been based off the idea of free markets, uh, uh, religious life, uh, freely chosen uh, according to rights of conscience, uh, uh, opposition to totalitarian government, uh, and uh, self-government or constitutionalism of, of some variety. And fascism really doesn't like any of that, except maybe uh, religious uh, conservatism, but in a sense where it's imposed by the state. Uh, so there's actually in American conservatism very little overlap. Uh, the criteria that I adopt from a scholar of fascism named Robert Paxton is um, uh, a particular pro the particular things that make fascism uh, distinct as a kind of bad thing is obsessive preoccupation with decline, humiliation, or victimhood, a cult of unity, energy, and purity. Uh, uneasy but effective collaboration with traditional elites and an abandonment of liberty to pursue redemptive violence or coercion by the state. Uh, and again, historically, American conservatism hasn't really liked any of this. And that has a lot to do with the peculiarities of American conservatism, sort of adopting uh, constitutional republicanism from the American founding, opposition to communism after the end of the Second World War, uh, standing up for uh, religious faith during a time when the left was in favor of uh, secularization. So American conservatism is very unique in this respect. One might even call it exceptional, but it's, uh, we don't use that term anymore. So without uh, further ado, I'll let you address the thrust of your piece then. So as we're looking at the new right, and I, I, um, I'll, I'll add as well, we recently had on a different topic, Jonah Goldberg on this podcast. Mm. And of course, Jonah, yeah. uh, his first book was entitled Liberal Fascism. And I, as a reader and a fan of that book, kind of appreciated part of what he was doing there, which was the, uh, and anybody, as I think you alluded to, who's on the right, if you haven't been called a fascist yourself, in all likelihood, the people that you have read and respect and admire have been called a fascist at some point in time. And Jonah's one of the larger points in his book was to point out that fascism, at least as it manifested in, say, you know, Nazi Germany and uh, out of coming out of you know, Mussolini's Italy, where Mussolini mm -hmm. was a socialist beforehand, was to point out the economic platform and a lot of the platform of, of these movements was in American terms, left wing. Uh, you know, I've heard Jonah comment that, you know, he had not appreciated uh, what we would be seeing in the change in the political right in the United States over, you know, the last 10 years or so, which has led him to, I think, revise part of his thesis. Um, so I'll, I'll ask the thrust of your question about the thrust of your piece. How should we think about the new right? And is the new right fascist? So when I wrote this article, I wrote it in a way that was intended to correct for my own biases. Uh, I am not a fan uh, or a part of what's calling itself the new right. Uh, I think sort of on the, the more eggheady academic side of criticism of it for some time. And so I decided to write with an understanding that there's a way of maybe defending at least some of this stuff especially from people who seem to be very genuine and sincere about their uh, positive vision for what this uh, movement can do. Uh, and the person who I, I really try to look to as, as that figure is Yoram Hazoni of the Edmund Burke Foundations or led the national conservatism stuff. Uh, Israeli scholar, um, wrote a couple books, Virtue and Nationalism, and a book on conservatism. Um, 
And a few days, I think, after I submitted the final draft of this uh, essay, at the same time, I was uh, submitting final grades. So I apologize <laughs> to to everyone involved. I was uh, I was very preoccupied. Uh, so, you know, a lot of this was written uh, over over cigars uh, in a classic Jonah Goldberg fashion. Yeah, not that there's anything wrong with that. No, no, there's, <laughs> that's what I kept telling myself. This is really the good life. Yes. Uh uh, I, people should have my problems, you know, people who are like doing underwater welding are like, oh, okay. Yeah. You're really struggling. Um, so the, uh, the, a few days after I submitted the final draft, uh, there was a, a person who's associated with the American reformer who posted that we needed a Protestant Franco. And I was like, oh, you could have maybe said that a little earlier. Uh, <laughs> so I could have included that in the piece <laughs> because uh, because that's actually a pretty significant pivot uh, where people start to edge themselves into saying the names of people who were affirmatively fascist in their vision for their country. So unlike Francisco Franco was uh, as a person who was um, part of the nationalist uh, side of the very bloody uh, Spanish Civil War uh, and the Falanges party that was um, imitating fascism in, in Italy. So the new right has a problem that I stipulate in the piece, uh, namely that um, the, uh, the there is no limiting factor to the arguments that they're making. Uh, and the reason for this is that uh, they are always concerned about a state of emergency. There is a sense of decline, uh, at which point we will no longer be able to go back. Uh, and they think we are at this inflection mark. Uh, and you will see this in some of the quotations uh, in which I have a few people, including Glenn Elmers, who simply insist we can no longer call ourselves conservatives. We have to be something else. Well, unfortunately, the only other thing you can call yourself historically on the right is a reactionary. And reactionaries and uh, uh, and fascists engage in a form of uh, counter-revolutionary violence on the basis of decline. And the source of that decline is supposed to be liberalism. And that is the kind of language we get from uh, from the uh, 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 from people like Patrick Deneen, who I don't think is any student of uh, Mussolini's speeches. Uh, I think he comes by this argument for why liberalism failed in 2018, as well as in regime change, which I've I've read. Um, he also has this. It opens up with a very bleak picture of uh, of the United States. Uh, that what this then means is that uh, we can no longer tolerate so-called liberal ideas of constitutional republicanism. We need to take direct action and we need someone who will take that action for us. Um, so what I say is that um, there's no limiting principle to what that person might be. Uh, and the reason for this is that um, there's no limiting principle to the opposition. Uh, so they hope that they might be able to uh, to use oppositional frames uh, of of government, oppositional tools uh, for their own sake in order to prevail in some kind of ultimate victory over liberalism. Um, so any idea of conserving the constitutional order has gone out the window. And unfortunately, there's only one way to go with that. Uh, and so at that point, what you're really dealing with is the willingness of new right leadership uh, to to essentially constrain people from saying things they shouldn't, 
Uh, and Yoram Hazoni has been that person, but it seems like he's not really under, he's not really in control of anything anymore. So we're now seeing some pretty dramatic statements made by, um, by people in the new right about how far we can really go with this. One of the interesting things, James, about this essay, this, it's a wonderful essay, sort of top to bottom, is it's very historically grounded and historically conscious. And you divide up in looking at this, you divide up, you know, there is a, there is a, there is a European mm-hmm. fascist tradition, and then there is a sort of uh, imported fascism that mm-hmm. has existed in America since the 30s and the 40s. In what ways do you think uh, the present sort of sort of new right, although it's not, you know, uh, a sort of according to Hoyle fascism, it's particularly resonant with this American strain uh, yeah. that precedes it in the 30s and 40s. That's a fascinating story in that piece. And I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit for our listeners. Oh, sure. I, I thought about it doing it in my previous answer, but I, I think I had been speaking for 45 minutes. So I, I <laughs> to calm it down. Uh, so we I'm can turn this asked. into a Joe Rogan episode. That's fine. <laughs> well, we are talking about cigars. He regularly smokes. Yes. yes. I'm in my uh, my office on campus at Ave Maria. So um, uh, there might be some fire code violations. Worth it. Uh, so uh, so American fascism is very strange, uh, uh, and often Americans are not aware of this history uh, because uh, it, you know, we we normally understand America have, as a liberal power that intervened on the side of the the English who were fighting against um, the Axis powers and had to make this sort of devil's bargain with communists uh, in the Soviet Union. Uh, and the truth is that America had a very complicated relationship with fascism. I mean, FDR liked Mussolini. Uh, there was uh, an, uh, a defender of Hitler within his uh, his cabinet and uh, Joseph P. Kennedy. Uh, Father Coughlin was a friend of Joseph P. Kennedy, and he was a, a vocal defender of fascism in his radio addresses uh, and in his magazine um, and uh, in a political party that he started to kind of defend it. Uh, that's called the Christian Front. Um, the magazine is called Social Justice. I think the uh, radio show is called The Hour of Power. And then there are the Silver Shirts, uh, The Boond. Um, I don't think The Boond made it into the, I just thought it was too long to include them. Uh, and of course, Charles Lindbergh, the America First Movement. Uh, these were all organizations that were uh, in favor of fascist government. And the argument that they made, and the most important one, was that it was anti-communist, uh, and the communists are the real enemy. And in a way, that's that's just true. Like communism was probably the more serious threat to the United States. Um, but the the thing that often people don't realize is that these fascists in the United States were also pacifists, or at least anti-militarists. I guess you shouldn't call them pacifists. They were in favor of American non-intervention. They liked the idea of America sticking to uh, its side of the planet and not intervening in any uh, European war. Uh, Now, the reason they did this was because they were uh, either fellow travelers or... um, in some cases, in, in Coughlin's case, there were people who were actually unregistered foreign agents for the Nazi party. Uh, and some of them were useful idiots for fascists 
that were uh, uh, importing this this message to the United States to keep it out of the conflict uh, until um, fascist powers in Europe could uh, control all the territory they wanted. Uh, it was a way of discouraging American interest, and there was a willing audience for this. There were, of course, people who remembered how bad it was after the First World War. Uh, there are people who are German, you know, they're German immigrants or German uh, descended families in the Midwest, uh, who also remember that the last liberal internationalist, Woodrow Wilson, sent vigilantes into their uh, communities and some, or at least approved of their interventions uh, in order to smash up German language uh, newspapers. Uh, Irish Catholics who really liked uh, uh, Mussolini for the Lateran Treaty of 1929 uh, and um, also uh, sided with Franco because the Spanish Republicans were engaged in wholesale liquidation of Catholic priests and religious. Um, so uh, it's not everyone uh, that that is uh, opposed to the fascists uh, on their own. I should also mention uh, that there are elites like, you know, of a, a very high ranking Nazi is a Harvard graduate who comes to uh, to the United States uh, uh, at the invitation of his own Harvard class. Originally, he was going to be one of the people in charge of running it and was going to have a very prominent place on a dais uh, until they think otherwise. Uh, and um, you have uh, you, you even have uh, a Dulles at the time, John Foster Dulles who's defending this, uh, th these uh, regimes, especially Germany, because he represents commercial interests that are recuperate, uh, recouping money from the, uh, from the previous war and hoping that they might be able to continue uh, you know, profitable business arrangements under Hitler. Uh, John D. Wilsey uh, has a very powerful opening image in his book on Dulles in which he he's going through the archives in Princeton and, there, and he just finds this picture of Dulles shaking hands with a smiling Hitler. He's like, what is, the, what is going on, right? So uh, America liked fascism on some levels. Uh, they certainly preferred it to communism. And so they were willing to, you know, give a hearing to this anti-interventionism message. Uh, and the reason that this is relevant to the question about the new right is that the new right is also very anti-interventionist. Mm -hmm. And that has that has an earlier uh, one thing I want to tell listeners is I interviewed John Wilsey about this book on uh, the Acton Line program, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes because it's a fascinating story of of John Foster Dulles. Amazing, um, isn't it? It's, like it's it, it, Wilsey, great. Wilsey can make even Dulles interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and and he also a little too, little too close to reality in the marketing in that name, right? Dullis, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, right. and a fast truth in advertising. It's actually, Latin for interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my lord. Um, the other thing, the other thing is, this has some resonance with the earlier American Republican tradition of anti-interventionism, mm -hmm. um, which is which is one of the ways that. Um, these sorts of people with these dubious business interests, with these statuses for as agents, these sort of useful idiots, will then peddle to a broader American audience that might be, you know, hostile to fascism in principle, but is also sort of a committed uh, non-interventionist in a sort of historical American sense. So they, they find an audience. Um, yes, for these other things, using that as leverage. And I think you see that a lot in the new right today. You get a lot of times when there are criticisms of folks on the new right, they will come back with, well, what about the Iraq war? 
And yeah. this is something used to devalue and dismiss criticisms of their opponents as, a, as an attempt, uh, a sort of whataboutism, uh, interconservative whataboutism. Well, I think you need to add, too, at the... Uh, in the case of the Iraq war, one of the things that always annoys me, and this is a bit of a hobby horse of mine, so I'm just going to state it and then nobody needs to address it if they don't want to. But the revisionist history that goes into the telling of all of that, um, you had pretty much every intelligence agency in the world. Now, if we want to just say we shouldn't entrust trust any intelligence agency around the world. That's a perfectly fine argument, and I'm happy to have it. But there was wide agreement on the predicate for the Iraq war. And there's this eternal effort to try to make it into, you know, the, the what I find interesting, I should say, is the right adopting the left's argument from the time, which was that this was uh, a, a war for oil, that it was uh, a war for the purpose of having a war uh, that just kind of ignores the reality on the ground that those of us who lived through that period of time, I think, will recall. This is one of the things that just annoys me about the nature of that conversation. Look, was it wrong in retrospect? Yes, in retrospect. The predicate of, you know, they had weapons of mass destruction and we needed to do something about it. Uh, turned out not to be true. But the retelling of it that makes it into this nefarious thing, instead of just, you know, accepting the, as the British would say, cock up before conspiracy, I find deeply frustrating. And that enters so much into this conversation that has fueled so many of this non-interventionist argument, which I have sympathies with. Um, but I think it at least should be grounded in real history rather than this retelling that we're getting about that period of time. I just mentioned that uh, I actually opposed the, uh, the intervention in Iraq. And the very first thing I ever wrote uh, was on this. And it wasn't out of some sort of like brandishing my humanitarian uh, you know, uh, left-wing uh, sort of credentials. It's that uh, I compared it to, to the invasion of Sicily and the Peloponnesian War, where it, it felt like a diversion from the original mission. Uh, so I get to say with all credibility <laughs> that, you know, uh, the, the contemporary New Right anti-interventionism uh, is, is often more of a kind of a principled opposition to America as a uh, as an institution or as a country or as a internally consistent set of beliefs uh, than it is to any kind of strategic vision for um, uh, uh, America's position abroad. Uh, you always have this argument: well, we can't get too bogged down in Russia because China is the real enemy. But then you read people like Sorab Amari uh, or other people on the new right talking about how we need to be comfortable with um, uh, China achieving its own uh, spheres of interest and its own regional hegemony. And so you know that if the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine comes to an end, we know what the position is going to be once China is the, quote, focus, which is it's going to be accommodationism. So I, I, don't, I don't accept that the new right position is going to uh, be hard on China and soft on Russia. I think it's soft on whatever the most urgent international uh, concern for the United States is. I think it also bears mentioning that uh, a not inconsiderable amount of it, not all, and there were positions like the one that you just articulated, James, that were perfectly reasonable and good to argue at that period of time. But I think there are also just a lot of 
deeply politically interested people who looked at the consequences of the Iraq war to particularly the Republican Party, that it part led to the decline in popularity of George W. Bush and then the rise in election of Barack Obama, who was uh, opposed to the war and campaigned a lot on that, even going back to when he was uh, first campaigning for the U.S. Senate in 2004. Uh, that I just see as a political reaction to a failure yep, of a presidency absolutely. rather than any kind of deep principled position on in- intervention or non-interventionism. Absolutely. So I'm I'm curious, you mentioned, you know, the the wide variety of interests and particularly non-military interventionist interests that motivated sympathy towards fascist regime, regimes uh, in the, the 40s. Um, but how much of that, like, how, how do we parse out what of that do you actually call itself fascist or what of that was simply like a convenient thing? You know, cause there's, there's a lot of people who are pacifists for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. And, and then to bring that up to the present, um, you know, I, I probably was, uh, less pacifist 20 years ago when we invaded Iraq. So one of my first uh, <laughs> uh, community college editorials uh, was, was not quite defending it, but it was it was it was defending against some criticism of we're going in for oil. I was like, hey, you know, I haven't seen any benefit of the gas pump yet. You yeah, know, if anybody wants to go um, but, uh, dig through my uh, college uh, newspaper yeah. columns, yeah, you will find yeah, some yeah, pretty can... full throated defenses of the um, war in Iraq that uh, I don't agree with <laughs> anymore. But, you know, right. we were we were all young once. Right. You know, and I, you know, yeah. And so but I'm I'm probably definitely more anti-interventionist now. I'm, I'm sympathetic uh, to some of the frustration people have had, uh, especially with Afghanistan, actually, with how badly that pullout went. Um, I, I did write in a mm. pretty heavy-handed way about that. Um, but so there's people today that are just, they're, they're seeing things, they're disappointed maybe with, you know, you could go all the way back to Vietnam uh, with, uh, you know, failures uh, from the United States military efforts, uh, you know, wasted resources, lost uh, lives of, you know, in many cases, family members, friends. Um, that's true of, you know, our generation with, with the uh, war on terror in Iraq and Afghanistan. We all know somebody who went over there. Um, some of us know people who didn't come back. Um, and... I could see people just being kind of frustrated on that end. And then you can combine that domestically with, uh, you know, uh, to use like Bernie Sanders phrase, this, this idea that we have a sort of like casino economy, you know, um, that that everything is kind of rigged for the house. Right. That the there's a certain elite class um, and they're just kind of pulling the strings for themselves and for themselves. And the little guy gets left behind. These are understandable frustrations. And I think. Just being frustrated with these things, however right or wrong we may consider uh, the basis, doesn't make someone a fascist, right? Uh, there has to right. be steps beyond that. So how do we parse that out? So uh, one thing, to, uh, that was a great, uh, I won't even try to repeat um, anything about uh, the contemporary concerns. That was a very good summary. I'd only add that um, you'll frequently have invoked like George Washington's farewell address in which he talks about the need for religion and education, but for Americans to stay completely out of any kind of foreign interventions, because we'll have to take sides. When we take sides, we'll be alienating interests, and uh, we'll also be spending blood and treasure on outcomes that do not benefit us. Um, <clears throat> um, so, the uh, the th- th- there's even at the 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 earliest stages of the American Republic. Uh, uh, a hostility to the idea of American intervention abroad. 
Now, what facilitates um, that period from Washington's farewell address, uh, I mean, we do try to like, you know, take sides during the War 1812 with uh, results that Washington anticipated, um, uh, you know, not great. Uh, so what we do instead is we adopt the Monroe Doctrine in which we, you know, essentially say uh, colonial powers go home. Uh, and then we engage in a kind of interior, uh, interior empire building through Conquest West. Um, uh, but we stay mostly out of any kind of exterior. We're not colonizing. We're not doing the scramble for Africa. Uh, and it's not until the Spanish-American War where things really change. And even then, it's we kind of end up with the Philippines because no one will take it. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of uh, there, there, there's a lot of history for America to have a presumptive opposition to intervention abroad. And it's right to say that the contemporary moment of the new right is an, uh, is an attempt to essentially uh, reckon with uh, the, the Bush presidency, a, a reckoning that was never actually allowed uh, in the 2012 uh, um uh, it's it, people don't remember this, or they're too young to remember this. So a lot of the people on the new right are very young, uh, so they don't know this stuff. But the 2012 nomination campaign was um, uh, not really ready uh, to to even reckon with this. And this was meant. This is you know many years uh, after Bush. So it's um, it's only now. It was really only in 2016 where anyone in the Republican Party was allowed to express hostility uh, to the uh, to the Iraq war, at which point everyone in the Republican Party voted against it. <laughs> it's like the, the funny thing is that like suddenly everyone was against it uh, because it was unpopular, uh, even though if you go back on the voting record, uh, everyone was for it then. But, you know, the the only person who could credibly critique it was Trump because he didn't have a voting history. And uh, so he could he could sort of be skeptical of these sorts of things. Uh, and uh, so this is the person who a lot of uh, people look to for interest on this. And what does this have to do with the new right? Well, the new right was attempting to articulate an alternative vision of conservatism that fit with his priorities and his perspectives and articulated a new vision of conservatism that was freed from the baggage of the Reagan, uh, Bush, Bush, sort of history. Uh, and this was done very intentionally. Uh, a sort of creed de corps of the, of, uh, the new right was uh, something called Against the Dead Consensus, uh, which was published in First Things. And this is uh, a starting point for the attempt to create a new version of that conservatism that's uh, uh, oddly uh, nationalist, but also less interventionist. I wonder, James, if you could dial in on a couple aspects of something you just said there, which is that this new right has this disproportionately young. Mm -hmm. uh, and I want to go back to something that you said, I think, in response to my first question, which was there's this belief, and I've certainly heard this plenty, too, about, you know, things are so bad now. Um, we were in such a decline. The what is conservatism conserved? We can't call ourselves conservatives anymore because we need more radical solutions to that. And I found these in not every case, but in a lot of cases, these coming from very young people uh, who at minimum just do not have the lived historical perspective uh, that I think, you know, the, to, to borrow uh, a, a nice little saying that I cannot remember who, that we're born in this world completely ignorant and only get less so as we get less young. 
<laughs> but we hear these kind of insistences that, you know, from people who haven't lived through all that much, that it is as bad as it's ever been. It's as, it's only getting worse and we need radical solutions. I wonder if you could tie that, too, to a couple of examples that we've seen recently of some of these prominent young voices on the new right. Uh, Nate Hockman, who has been on uh, Acton podcasts before, uh, who got uh, let go from the DeSantis campaign for some role in creating a video that had some explicit Nazi imagery. Um, and then there was this piece about Richard Hanania over the weekend. Um, the, the surprise, uh, supposed surprise of, is that he had written things in favor of uh, biological eugenics that... Uh, you know, and under a pseudonym that I don't know why anybody was surprised because he wrote a lot of the same things under his actual name. Uh, but you certainly get the connection of eugenics back to the Nazis, back to fascism. Can you uh, talk through a lot of this, both that kind of young feature and then what we're seeing specifically from some of those young people that has echoes of fascist themes from the past? So there are two uh, phrases you can use to understand what's going on with this. Um, the first is an old phrase. It's no enemies to the right, uh, which is very similar to no enemies to the left when communists were doing this. So no enemies to the right means that uh, even if you are a person on the right, if you know someone who's more extreme than you, then you do not publicly criticize them. Uh, and so this approach to conservative politics uh, is not normally the way American conservatives have conducted themselves. There's the kind of legendary exclusion of groups by the National Review. Um, oh, I should have called it National Review. They don't like it when you put the the in front of it. But by National Review, uh, you know, like the um, the Birchers called the Birchers. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, they and have, like, and, the little and objectivists. And uh, yeah, the the Randians. Uh, <clears throat> um, and uh, the, the kind of gatekeeping function that National Review played was a way of preserving public legitimacy for the conservative positions taken and the policy preferences of conservative political leaders uh, so that you don't have this. And there's been a disintermediation of, uh, of the right. Um, you know, National Review no longer really controls um, this sort of thing. In fact, gatekeeping's bad, right? Like it's, uh, it's girl boss, gatekeep and gas. I, I got the order wrong, but you know, the, uh, you don't want to, these are things you shouldn't do. Right. I, I'm not much of a girl boss these days, but, uh, the, um, the, uh, the gatekeeping function, uh, uh, has now sort of devolved into no enemies to the right, which is why are you criticizing your own side here? You're taking theirs by doing so. Uh, and the other, other one I get from a, a person I know, uh, uh, which is uh, to own the lib shall be the whole of the law. Uh, there is um, a kind of a juvenile glee that comes from making self-serious people online get very angry. Uh, it's uh, essentially poking the uh, the woke bear, right? It's like, uh, so you say things that will make people mad. It's very funny. You share the outrage online and uh, by, you know, retweeting it on your anon uh, uh, Twitter account or in your group chat uh, or what have you. And the way that you uh, you own the libs is you make, you know, you get them to get angry at things that, of course, they're going to get angry at. But uh, and it becomes a kind of competition, especially young younger people, about what they can do and get away with. 
and so uh, one way to own the libs is, of course, to adopt fascist and Nazi imagery uh, in order to get them to say, <gasps> you know, oh, my gosh, just, you know, the, uh, so now the libs are owned. Right. Uh, and so this uh, approach becomes a kind of milieu in which young people who spend a lot of time online, not all young people do, but those who do. Uh, uh, get into this sort of thing. So the next thing you know, you're putting the sun and rod in the background of a fascist march to Deronda Santis uh, in the uh, in the advertisement you were describing before. Uh, I wasn't going to bring it up, but uh, you know, when we were talking about things that happened after I submitted this manuscript, but now that we're talking about it, uh, the sun and rod is like uh, sort of like a second or third tier Nazi image, right? It's not easily as recognizable, but you see it, and you're like, oh, that doesn't look good. Um, as soon uh, one, as you see one, it. Yeah, even if you don't know the Nazi association with it, the vibe of the whole thing is uh, not, yeah. not great, Bob. People in uniforms uh, with bayonet rifles marching uh, in unison. You can't see their feet, so you don't know if they're goose-stepping, but you know they are. Uh, so it's a bad vibe, uh, like you said. And so the reason why you see this is because uh, you have been owning the libs for so long. Now that's just what you do. That's just how you think about this. Uh, you're always incorporating images that are meant to get a lot of online excitement and engagement. And from what I understand, I read a Semaphore article about it. Um, I'm, I apologize to the authors of that piece that, whose names I can't remember. I'd like to shout out people that we'll, do this we'll link it in the show notes. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Uh, uh, is uh, is that um, uh, is that maybe I don't know? Uh, is that is that maybe the 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 original idea here was to organize the online world to get into memeing DeSantis the way people dis memed Trump in 2016. Uh, and of course, the reason why this was having a difficult time is DeSantis is a very different kind of candidate from Trump. It's more of a sort of capable technical uh, uh, governor than a incredibly divisive yet also hilarious man who will go on borscht belt level tears about how he's never seen his, a, a skinny person drink diet coke so that is a person you can meme okay you can meme donald trey he the memes right he does the memeing all right all you do is just re, re uh, retweet well these, uh, and and these that's things a very difficult sign for trump emerge organically and it's like it, mm -hmm. the, the, this is the difference between like the uh, to go back to last week's episode of Unwind, the Barbenheimer phenomenon, which was something right. that was created entirely organically based on the coincidence of these films being released on the same day. And again, as the marketing guy here, I promise you right now in corporate boardrooms all across America, there are conversations about, you know, how can we create our own kind of Barbenheimer phenomenon? And the answer yeah. is you cannot because every attempt is going to be <laughs> terrible. And it's to me very similar to the attempt to say, well, this thing that grew up organically around Trump worked for him, so we need to recreate it ourselves. Sometimes you just cannot do that. It needs so the to way grow that up they organically. Oh. Yeah, so the way that they did it is they tried to, you know, to to bootstrap it with these uh, these videos that were so online that even people who are just modestly online are going to see a Nazi imagery and they're going to be like, what is going on here? If, if you got a republic, uh, if you got a Republican strategist and you're like, okay, Here's what we're going to do. We're going to put his face in front of a Nazi symbol and with marching fascist uh, soldiers. You're like, is this a Democratic op? 
you know, is this a, is this like, you know, are they trying to destroy this candidate? Because this is literally what, how opposition runs ads, right? This is like the, the LBJ ad on, uh, on Goldwater where they're counting down the numbers and then, then the nuclear bomb goes off. Yep. Right. So, um, that, that's how bad that, uh, that the attempt to recreate lightning in a bottle like that, uh, can get, but it's also a feature. And I hate to say, I don't mean, I'm not a doomer, by any means, uh, we were talking about young people uh, being not terribly experienced. I think things are actually pretty okay. Uh, I don't understand why there's a lot of stress. Then again, I live in Southern Florida, so it's easy for me to say. Uh, but well, I think um, it's. I, I want to get back to getting Dillian here, but I think it is a, a a consequence of how many of these people are so online. You know, Christine yeah. Rosen, who we had on the podcast recently, is this great way of putting it that the problem with social media is that it has. Uh, all of the downsides of living in a small town with none of the upsides of it in that everybody's in everyone's business and things that are happening thousands of miles away that have nothing to do with you seem like immediate problems because it is in front of your eyes on a screen. So Saurabh Amari, when he got so fit to be tied over Drag Queen Story Hour, he was mad over something happening in Sacramento when he lived in New York City. Now, Perfectly reasonable to expect that the same kind of thing was going on in New York City, but I always found it instructive that the example was thousands of miles away from him. And I think people yeah. who are so online like that see everything that is weird or bad in the world, which there's always been weird or bad things in the world, but you see so much more of it now if you are that online. And I think it poisons your brain and you lose perspective on things as a result of it. There's one last thing. I'm sorry, Dylan. No, that's uh, fine. Uh, I, I once had a, a little online spat with Sorab and he he uh, he uh, he he like quote tweeted a, a quote reposted. I don't think we're allowed to call it tweeting anymore. Um, Elon will uh, appear to yell at you. So, yes. Yeah. He'll wrestle me, too. He's going yeah. after after Zuck. He's coming for me. Uh, so uh, so he he just retweeted uh, a, an emoji of a corn cob. And I got so many emails and direct messages like what? What does the corn cob mean? Yeah. And I was like, uh, I am so ashamed that I know what it means. Yes, yes. <laughs> but it just it just means that I lost, in his well, it, opinion, it's uh, a, a conversation. It, it's a reference to a tweet from a guy who's as the handle drill, who is this surrealist comedian, which, again, you have to be very online to get that somewhat obscure reference to a Twitter account. You know, it is it just is a perfect example of, of how online one needs to be. So. This will get worse, by the way. This will get worse because a lot of people are motivated to run on campaigns, to do the legwork for campaigns, are also very online. We saw it with the Kamala Harris campaign. Uh, it's hard. We don't remember this. Uh, but the, the Republicans are going to have to deal with very online, strange people who are going to, you know, I want to own the libs with Sun and Rad. All right. Like it's so if you're thinking of running for office, Hire the oldest people you can find. <laughs> All right, uh, Dylan, sorry. Yeah, no, so I just wanted to add to the, the owning the libs sort of thing. So uh, as far as, like, fascism goes, it's the sort of thing that even when you read people at the time commenting on it, so uh, uh, a famous one is Umberto Eco. Uh, Dan may get to mm -hmm. that. Uh, he wrote a good essay on it. Um, George Orwell even. Um, 
Uh, some of my favorites are uh, Wilhelm Rupka had a great uh, article on fascist economics, trying to analyze that at the time. And he does kind of pull out some principles, some of which I might get to. But he kind of he talks about how hard it is really to pin it down. And to me, the person who who, who did the best, uh, although he was a communist and an atheist, so I don't actually support his own <laughs> point of view. But uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, the existentialist uh, writer yeah. in his book, uh, An- uh, Anti-Semite and Jew. Uh, it, which is kind of like a long troll of, so he's sort of trying to own the fascists, which is uh, a little unfortunate, but, but <laughs> he does, he does kind of succeed also in some ways. And he, he paints this portrait, uh, of how the anti-Semite behaves in an argument. Um, so he says, you know, at the outside, at the outset, he has chosen to devaluate words and reasons, um, that, you know, for him, an argument, an interaction is a game. Um, he does not believe in words, uh, Sartre says. You know, it's all about just trying to get the other person to beclown themselves and make them them look bad. And as you mentioned, people going after the, the self-serious on social media. Uh, that's people who are using social media as a serious career thing, as, you know, they think they're being informative or they're whatever, doing their social justice thing. And then you have a bunch of other people who think it's a game. And that's who they're interacting with. Um, and he concludes in this really interesting passage. He says, you know, if, if as we've been able to observe, the anti-Semite is impervious to reason to experience is not because his conviction is strong. Rather, his conviction is strong because he has chosen, first of all, to be impervious. Um, and I, I think mm. I think there's there's a psychology to it that you have people. So Rupka says that fascism is distinctly illiberal. Uh, in, in the sense of being totalitarian. So there, there's this fundamentally fundamental rejection of liberalism. We definitely see that today. A lot of people write in books about how they're illiberal or post-liberal or whatever the case may be. Um, and I think it comes from this dissatisfaction, um, I think wrongly uh, placed, but understandably in many cases. They look at the system, whatever that is to them. They look at the elites, you know, whoever those are to them. And they say, this whole thing is rigged. It's all corrupt. And instead of opting for, therefore, we need to become champions of the liberal order. And by liberal, I don't mean progressive. Think American founding principles. That's what I mean by liberal. Uh, The liberal order that made this country great, uh, that allowed people to thrive for so long in so many ways. Instead of saying we need to be the ones to revive that and to be, be the champions of that in our generation, they say we want corruption for us. Uh, that is that is the 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 state of uh, I think a lot of these people they they say the yeah. whole thing is rigged why can't it be rigged for us or or uh, so they're giving up it's it's a psychology of people who have given up they've weaponized um, the state and we must yeah. do so to reward our friends and punish our right enemies. rather than saying how can we de-weaponize the state right how can we how can we demilitarize uh, politics. Um, which you think anti-interventionist people should be sympathetic to. Um, instead, uh, they say, how can we get it to work for us? Um, so, you know, Rupka mentions, uh, he says, that you end up with this kind of compromise. It's not a, a totalitarian in the communist sense. Um, it pre- preserves some aspects of individualism. Uh, but he says this monopolistic interventionist economic system, which is a result of all these conflicting forces, has the double merit of being a job-providing system system for the fascist partisans, which is very important for fascism as a mass movement, and of allowing the government to claim the economic successes for itself and its marvelous foresight and to heap all the blame on the economic shortcomings of private entrepreneurs and the liberalistic principles they represent. So it's this kind of 
socialization of losses, uh, he mentions, um, and the government, you know, picking winners and losers uh, and taking credit for every economic gain, whether justified or not. In fact, he 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 says usually not. Um, and and then every loss uh, they're going to just blame on uh, the, the private enterprise or on liberalism or liberalistic principles. And it all becomes this weird sort of well, not weird, but this this very frightening sort of language game. Um, that at, at the base, it's a bunch of people with all their minds made up in the first place. Uh, they're not interested in a discussion. So uh, my, my takeaway from that is that these are people who need hope, right? Because this is coming from a place of feeling powerless um, in, in the face of a system that they don't think it's working for them or the people they care about. Uh, some of that, I think, is, is role-playing because a lot of these people are, in fact, like East Coast elites, um, and yet they're posing as if they know what the blue-collar person is like. They didn't grow That's up. The they worst. didn't work at factories. They didn't grow up, you know, in the neighborhood and schools. Grew up in I suburban did. Connecticut. Um, yeah, exactly. Now, they, now don't, they don't, they don't actually people. know these people. You know, I, I mind of like <laughs> the Leo, hard scrabble streets of suburban yeah, Connecticut. I mind, yeah. I mind of, uh, <laughs> there's a scene in Anna Karenina, uh, by Leo Tolstoy where, uh, the, the lead character Levin goes to work in the fields with his former serfs. They've, they've been liberated. Um, but he talks, he talks about how the revolutionary of the time is always like putting them up on a pedestal. And he, he's like, you know, what? I know these people and he, he cares for them. Like they're his workers, but he's like, but I also kind of like, hate some of them <laughs> like like they're not in the sense of like as a class and as a people but like he he knows them well enough to be annoyed by them right he has a familiarity that these these intelligentsia don't my my position and i i have to say i i find it very admirable that you engage with these people at all uh and that you put the energy into it because it's not something i do um it's not and something i i don't do in part by choice because i don't think playing the game is ever a winning proposition um, and I guess, I don't know what, it's, it's easy to say I, that I'm in the right and, you know, it's just expended energy, but I don't always think that's the case. Uh, so one last historical example, um, uh, in 1905, there was a basically failed ref Russian revolution. Um, they, yep. they managed to get a constitution. They got a, a Duma, which is like a Congress. Um, but they really didn't have the power to make any actual laws. The, the czar was still supreme. So they got some, it was some improvement. Um, they had political parties, they had elections, things like that. Uh, but it wasn't great. Uh, and then there was the failed Russo-Japanese war, which preceded it. So there's all these questions of how great is Russia really? Um, in 1909, there was a group of intellectuals who published a volume called Vecchi, which means landmarks. Uh, and these are people that evidence a real conservative liberal tradition in Russia. They were people who, were, in many cases, were former Marxists. They were members of the intelligentsia who now were critiquing it. Um, and they were kind of taking a victory lap in that volume. There's good things there. I recommend people read it if they can find a copy. Um, but they were kind of like, you know what, the intelligentsia, these, these Marxist radicals, these nihilists, you know, they've lost. And here's all the things they're wrong about. Um, and it was this kind of you know, here's here's our proposition for where else the country can go. Uh, basically, everybody hated it, included people who should have liked it. Um, but we don't need to get into that. The point is, eight years later, um, the revolutionaries came to power. Um, so I, I, I'm, I am personally at this weird sort of dilemma where I look at these people and I say, these are a bunch of jokers. They're like Sartre's anti-Semite. Um, they're playing a bunch of language games. The policies they choose are not chosen out of principle, but convenience. Um, and I don't want to play that game. I don't even want to give them the voice. On the other hand, 
if nobody takes them seriously, who's to say in eight years? Uh, we don't, we don't, you know, who's to say, as, as Lenin put it with reference to the 1905, uh, failed revolution, that that was a dress rehearsal for 1917. Who's to say that there aren't people that say, you know, January 6th was just a dress rehearsal for, for what we got in store. Um, how do we parse out when to take these people seriously, when to engage, how to engage, uh, and when to say, you know what, I should just be silent. It's, um, a lot to take in. I just, I uh, want to begin by saying that that SART reference was uh, awesome. And <laughs> I, I wish I'd thought to include it uh, in, in my own article because it is very true. Um, so the language game is about getting you uh, owned, right? So how do you get a person owned? What does this mean? For those of you uh, who are maybe older listening to this, been using that term and it sounds like I'm using it wrong, but uh, uh, the term owned is actually from gamer culture, yes. which should not surprise people, because uh, this is a young, you know, a young movement, and so it's kind of actually also an older gamer term. So it's like more of a millennial gamer term that's been kind of carried over. Uh, it means uh, if you are owned, you are uh, you lose terribly, all right, and you've been humiliated uh, by the person who is owning you. And so the word "own" here means that um, you're so bad, I now own you, body and soul, right? Um, uh, and so to own someone is to get them to be mad. Uh, uh, the worst thing to be in the game is mad online. That is the owned condition. Uh, and so when you are mad online, you are saying things like, how dare you say that? That's fascist. So now that I've got you to say that, you're wrong. So uh, by writing this article, I may have put myself at risk of being permanently owned. <laughs> Yet another corn cob. Uh, but the uh, the reason um, that, I, uh, that I play these language games uh, is that I'm always looking to off-ramp people, um, you know, like, and the idea is not that I will off-ramp someone by engaging with someone online. Like I often do, I often get people who are like, why are you talking to this person? It's like, this person's talking to me. Yeah. Uh, you know, they try to own me, I guess, like I didn't care. And now they're just talking to me. So I want this to be something that uh, they take with them. So that they're slowly going to think about this conversation, maybe so that they'll uh, uh, take it more seriously uh, when they encounter some things that maybe they don't like or strike them as incorrect. Um, but the reason why they play these games is because they're used to playing games. And so it's not an accident that they incorporate gamer language into the language game. Another thing you mentioned is despair. And yeah. of course, um, I agree entirely. Some of the first articles I've ever written on this subject talk about this. I think the first one I wrote about was specifically about Catholic integralism. It was called Why Catholic Integralism is an Ideology of Despair. Mm. Uh, and then I wrote a follow-up called After Republican Virtue. And the reason why I brought up Republican Virtue is that that is the virtue of self-government, the ability to, uh, to know and choose uh, the public good uh, in a way that uh, uh, is part of a constitutional order of rules and laws. And a lot of these people have no experience with this. Uh, if they've never been habituated to that way of life, uh, and instead they see people exploiting that way of life for gain, especially the libs, uh, then participating in that form of government seems to be a non-starter for them. 
Um, on the subject of picking winners and losers, uh, this is usually done in a way that is extremely rigged, as yeah. you said, uh, right. like uh, uh, fascism uh, in all the regimes where it took root was essentially a way of institutionalizing the rigging. Right. Uh, the model for that was called corporatism. I don't need to tell you what that is. And we actually have open advocacy for corporate po corporatist po uh, economic policy with people like Gladden Pappen in American Affairs, who also want to say that it's somehow Catholic. Um and right. uh, in a very strange way. Um, so uh, that rigging is also meant to create client uh, organizations that are institutionally loyal to the right. Uh, and so people, I think he may have said this publicly, he said this to me in a conversation, but Saurabh Sharma at America Moment was talking about creating a, we have this kind of petrochemical uh, client, cl uh, you know, uh, group uh, I'm not sure how true that is, but that's what he thought. Uh, and so we need to cr essentially create a kind of a new right aligned tech sector where you already have maybe venture capitalists and sort of errant groups that are into that sort of thing. Uh, and so when we you know pass the CHIPS Act, it's important that the that the organizations that emerge are Republican uh, and conservative in a way that will create a kind of corporatist alliance. Uh, between those two so that there can be a permanent interest there. And it's starting to sound like what you're trying to do is creating a coalition of large institutional arrangements uh, that uh, will hold together a permanent institutional majority. And you know, yeah. it's not it's not good. I know what that is. Uh, yep. uh, but um, two, th two last things. Uh, uh, one is uh, why engage at all? So uh, youth politics is based off of one of two positions. First is F you, dad. And the other one uh, is it's not a phase, mom. Um, these, are, these are your two options. <laughs> these are your. That's these, great. These are your, uh, I've been wanting to write this article for a long time. If anyone Please steals do. this, I will. I will be very mad. Uh, but uh, these are your two options. All right, and um, and in the case of uh, new right youth uh, politics, it's a, it's not a phase, mom. Uh, and that is, you know, these are people who very often have like Japanese cartoons as avatars online. People often don't know where they come from, but they come from a game called Hetalia, which is a, an anime game in which you play as girls that represent Axis powers. Oh, <laughs> so boy. It was, wow. Yeah, uh, I, I was not. Now that you know that uh, all of you will be a little unhappier. Uh, <laughs> but uh, just so you know, this is where it's all it's it's emerging out of. That's why it's so weird, you know. Um, but uh, uh, we have to treat this as a phase. Uh, you know, we've mentioned him on a couple of times, but Jonah Goldberg always liked to joke that the golden age of Randianism is 16. Um and I think that's the case here, like the golden age of Catholic integralism of, I don't know, like Franco appreciation, whatever it is that you're doing, uh, posting sun and rad memes of your favorite Republican candidate. The, the, the golden age of that is really 16. Uh, and so uh, uh, the, what you do by engaging with these ideas is you, sh you take their, their phase seriously, right? Like you go ahead and go to the wedding with your kid dressed up in whatever music subculture outfit they have, uh, right? Like taking the goth kid, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. to, you're like, that's fine, honey. Wear the black lipstick and the, and the little bray piercing. Uh, I love you very much. Uh, and, uh, and so uh, the, uh, and I hope that you can off-road them 
when they get a little older and they're finally willing to admit that it's a phase. Uh, in a way, you won't ever quite get rid of it. But I think I've already started to see some people uh, who are trying to off-road from the phase. We mentioned, uh, how do you say his name? Hanania? I always, uh, pre- I had a friend with the same last name and it was pronounced Hanania. So that's what's Hanania. Okay. Hanania, in fact, is trying to explain that this is what happened to him. Uh, he might be like in the transition from the phase, right? He may not be as much out of the phase as he thinks. I agree. I agreed with your assessment of the baby situation. Steps. Where, well, yeah. Baby so steps. That's, um, he, in the very beginning of the piece that he wrote about it, he said something about which is, you know, it's now clear from my writing that, you know, I no longer believe these things. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to stop you there. Um, <laughs> it is it is not clear from your current writings that you don't. But this is also where I personally struggle with a lot of this because, yeah. again, because they're disproportionate young. And, you know, while I never dabbled in, you know, Nazi imagery or Franco um, uh, love uh, or any of that kind of stuff when I was younger. Yeah. When I was younger in my early 20s, I had some much more radical ideas, mostly in a libertarian direction. But I could understand how people who don't agree with those could look at them and be just as turned off by that set of ideas as we are by what the new right is. uh, These new right young people are espousing now. So I I want to give some grace to these people and have given them an opportunity to grow out of all of it, which is why, again, having interviewed um, Nate Hockman a couple of times, who personally I found very likable and charming and I think is very intelligent. And what, what gets me more enraged about that situation, while I think it doesn't take a lot of moral intelligence to know that referencing Nazi symbols is a bad idea, like just do not do it. I get more fit to be tied about the older people and the organizations, the institutions that have and are continuing to fail these young people in trying either not turning them away from this very online stuff or in the worst cases, kind of encouraging it to make these young people the shock troops for this different version of the state that they are now advocating for. Uh, I Again, this is not to take any responsibility off the actors individually, because ultimately you are responsible for your own actions, and you should have to deal with the consequences of that. But I think we need to talk about the people in the institutions who at worst didn't try to intervene or at best didn't try to intervene. And at worst, were actively encouraging of this kind of behavior because of the benefit they and their institutions would get from it. Oh, I can get myself in trouble with that. Um, Yeah, there are a lot of institutions that have been making the most out of this moment on the right uh, in order to... um, in order to offer them up, I'm, I'm hesitant to name names, especially because there are good people at these organizations. Um, but, uh, you know, the uh, the the, uh, the problem is that they bear none of the costs. You know, they uh, they try to um, habituate all of these kids to their worst instincts or recommend to them uh, continuing to uh, try to own the libs rather than take ideas seriously. Uh, and then when these kids go off and make sun and rad memes or you know, uh, have incredibly anti-Semitic group chats that get leaked the second that they run afoul of someone, uh, they're the ones that get fired, not the institutions. Uh, the institutions on the right that are doing this uh, remain immune. And the reason for that is that they're well-heeled, or many times board members and donors don't know what's going on. Um, and, uh, you know, that's... Uh, 
uh, you know, that might have to come to a head soon. Might have to, you know, we might have to start naming names. One of the interesting things that's come up as we've as we've talked about this, we've talked about sort of the human person at the heart of a lot of this stuff. We've talked about religion as something that a lot of these folks play with too. We've talked about the role of despair here. And one of the interesting things in both your piece and our conversation is we talk around the edges of religion here. But I think that there's a very key role that religion plays in this phenomenon, both historically and and in the present day. And this is something that uh, Umberto Eco wrote an essay for the New York Review of Books back in the mid-90s called Or Fascism. And in it, he devises a very famous list of characteristics. And the one he leads with is the one that touches on religion. And he talks about how fascism is always, there's a cult of tradition, but it's always a syncristic cult of tradition. Yeah. It's not actually any actual tradition. And, and I'm just going to quote a little bit here. He says, the Nazi gnosis was nourished by traditionalist, synchristic, occultic elements. The most influential theoretical source of the theories of the new Italian right, Julius Evola, merged the Holy Grail with the protocols of the elders of Zion, alchemy Ugh. with the Holy Roman and Germanic Empire. A little bit later, if you browse the shelves that in American bookstores are labeled as New Age, you can find that they're even there, even St. Augustine, who, as far as I know, is not a, was not a fascist. But combining St. Augustine and Stonehenge, that is a symptom of or fascism. And I think with the weird techno anime Roman memes uh, and, and declarations of loyalty to the Pope simultaneously, you get a lot of this weird, weird religious syncretism, uh, that undergirds this. And part of this might be just a dedication to irrationalism as, as we've discussed earlier, but I think there's something else. I think there's a genuine sort of spiritual searching that seems totally, unrooted and ad hoc that's behind a lot of this and, and people that, you know, in Hanania's piece where he talks about, you know, his uh, transition from these sorts of very overtly extreme to perhaps just marginally extreme right <laughs> positions now, um, he talks about a lot of that being rooted in a self-loathing in a crisis and not value and very low self-esteem for himself at the time, this sorts of things and, and a destructive path. And I see that, I see that, that has, that has spiritual symptoms. I know that you've, you've thought a lot about these issues of religious syncretism with a lot of these movements. Mm. How do you think about through this and particularly the people that are, the people that are struggling with all of these, uh, with all of these things and often their spirituality gets thrown into it as well. Yeah, so this is um, something I've thought a whole lot about. Um, and a uh, very, very uh, young academic paper I have right now really needs to be worked on has talked about the need to appreciate uh, the idea of the occult in political theory. Uh, and the reason for this is, is for, as you describe, this, this sort of syncretic approach to religion. Uh, the way that I open the paper is talking about uh, two two uh, moments in Freemasonry. Uh, one is the uh, the memoir on Freemasonry that Joseph de Meist writes, uh, in which he talks about 
masonry as the supreme science of humanity necessary to end the reformation and return religions to uh, uh, a sense of unity. Uh, and the other is his fury at the French lodge for admitting Voltaire uh, and Voltaire's admission, you know, cause he'd blown everything up. Uh, and uh, it's, you, it's important that it's Meist because Meist of course is supposed to be this great defender of Catholic uh, authority and dogma. And the guy was a Martinist. Uh, he was a, a really weird occult believer, which is why when you read Meist uh, in his defense of the Catholic Church, that has nothing to do with natural law. There's no Aquinas. None of those things mean anything to him. He, he regards all that as exoteric teaching necessary to control the people. Uh, and so what religion becomes uh, for people in these res uh, in, in these environments is more, if it's not owning the libs, then what it is essentially is a way of recovering something from the past that you can use as a code, both to control other people and to adopt for your own. So it's ironically very modern, right? The attempt to recover a tradition that has nothing to do with you, um, like in medieval French Catholicism and say, this is mine now. And you're like some schlub in the Columbus, Ohio suburbs. Uh, you know, you're not you're not going to it's it's it, it, of course, you're going to feel uh, sad and alone. This is what you're going to this is what you're going to reach for. But the 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 occult is always kind of emerging. It's not really like, you know, uh, we need to be afraid of the lodge. That's not what I'm going for. That that's actually kind of a weird element to a lot of the fascisms we're describing, like Franco was obsessed with Freemasonry uh, and made a big part of his early uh, reign, the extirpation of lodges. Uh, other sort of Latin American ones uh, felt the same way. The sort of ultimate uh, conspiracy theory of fascism was the, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember how they put it. Uh, it's like the uh, Judeo-Masonic Bolshevik <laughs> sort of thing. And this is the, uh, this is the protocols, the elders of Sion. Uh, some people who were serious theologians wrote about it, like uh, Julio Minavel. Um, it's pretty nuts. Uh, and there are people who will cite those, like, you know, there's a guy named uh, uh, Father Felix Sardai Salvini, or Sardai Salvani, and, and he'll get quoted. He wrote a, a, a tract called Liberalism is a Sin. And when you put in liberalism, what you really mean there is Freemasonry and Jews. Uh, that's what he really means by that. Uh, and so when, you know, Gladden Pappen citing this guy, it's like, ooh, you know, it's like, oh, don't use that guy. Um, <laughs> uh, and, but again, it owns the libs to, to do that. Uh, it's right there in the title. You're owning the libs. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, so, uh, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the religious seeking that you're seeing there is, I think you're right, very authentic. Often these are people who have maybe a kind of... Uh, um, sense that religion um, uh, can play some role in structuring the world, and they often feel like their world is very unstructured, or they themselves live lives that need structure. And so they're seeking that out. But I cannot overstate the significance of how they're coming by this religion. Often it's in like Reddit, 4chan. Like if you go to our Catholicism on Reddit, it is not a good place to learn the catechism. <laughs> uh, you know, you're going to, there's a lot of Franco. There's a, you know, there's Dolphus who's like marginally better. Uh, you know, at least he wasn't like uh, any Semite, uh, you know, or a, a kook. Uh, he's just sort of an unfortunate man. Um, and, uh, but again, there are games the games are where they learn a lot of this stuff. 
um, uh, a game called Hearts of Iron 4. They'll learn a lot of this stuff. Uh, and another one's called Europa Universalis uh, 4, in which you can play as the Papal States, which, you know, by the way, I've played that game and I played as the Papal States. <laughs> uh, crushing the Reformation, right? You know, as a Catholic. Uh, you got to do it at least once. Um, but, uh, but for a lot of these people, like that's just how they, ad- you know, that's all they know. So the, right? so, the, that, so the syncretism is sort of a min maxing sort of attempt. That's right. That's right. You look up your game facts to find out, uh, how to, you know, how to, how to maximize the early advantage the papal states get from having rich uh, territories. I'm giving a little away, away too much a little right now, but, um, <laughs> so, but they, they treat it as a game, right? They do treat it as a game where um, the, uh, the religious seeking is a way to maximize uh, uh, their, their own sort of happiness and minimize their, their own sense of loneliness. Uh, and uh, in the same way people on the, like people who are woke on the left often got sucked into uh, the, the sort of broader wokeness by being like Harry Potter fans and seeking like fandoms to, out on Tumblr, uh, you have a lot of gamers on the right who uh, end up uh, in this kind of weird uh, love of Franco from playing Hoi 4 or, you know, Catholic integralism from playing EU4. Uh, uh, they, they find each other by like joining Reddit and trying to get strategies for winning the game or getting certain kinds of achievements. Um, one last thing is that um, uh, the ironic posture that you get from uh uh, owning the libs or what have you, it's not a stable one. So you either off ramp or you go serious, right? So there are going to be people who will share Sun and Rad, whatever, and they mean it. Uh, and that's because they've uh, essentially memed themselves into Nazism or whatever. Uh, and and so the seeking needs to uh, it needs to go in the direction where they're off ramping from this craziness. Uh, so, um, as I, I, look, I engage Dylan, but I don't go on Reddit. Yeah. You know, I, that's, that's, that's a bridge too far for me. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, um, just so you know, like, uh, if you're one of these people who's concerned about these sorts of things, uh, dip in there. I do not suggest, um, playing Hitalia, by the way, that game is, I, I just searched for it when I saw it and I was like, okay, this is, there's a lot going on here that I don't necessarily need to to uh to have in my life yeah uh, we have gone uh, very long and we were going to oh talk about this um uh, david brooks piece but uh, i don't think we have time for that other than to i will just uh put it in the show notes so people can take a look at it you know dylan had made the point earlier about uh, the iraq war and this idea that we all know somebody who went over there which is actually very much at the heart of david brooks's piece mm. in which he is saying of these elite classes um that's not true and that they have separated themselves in a bunch of different ways um, it, it is a very interesting piece. I think it is David Brooks kind of at his best when he gets these kind of big picture trend things that I think he notices, uh, does a very good job of noticing. And But because they are uh, often big generalizations, there are a lot of disagreements that you can have with it. But it's uh, interesting and provocative, and I would encourage people to take a look at it. Uh, but we have run very long, so we will call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, as James used to do, please look in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. Thanks to Dan, thanks to Dylan, and a special thanks to James Patterson. For the Acton Institute, I'm Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week. <laughs>